Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. We have a big show, so let's get right at it. A little bit later on, we're going to meet Catherine Ryan. She's a Canadian who has made a huge splash in Britain as a comedian, and she has a new book now called The Audacity. We'll tell you all about it in just a little while. First up, let's meet Commander Chris Hadfield. He was the first Canadian to walk in space and served as the commander of the International Space Station. Now, on Earth, the astronaut and best-selling author is turning to fiction for the first time. James Cameron, director of Avatar and Titanic, called Chris Hadfield's new book, The Apollo Murders, nail-biting. I couldn't put it down, he said. The new thriller is set in 1973. In this alternative history, the Cold War is still burning hot and is now being projected into space with the Soviets building an orbiting spy station while looking to mine the moon for precious radioactive minerals. With Apollo 18, now remember the real Apollo missions ended at 17, the U.S. is out to frustrate those plans. It may be that the Soviets are one step ahead though as they already have someone inside. The Apollo program. Hadfield is also the author of a memoir, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, the children's book The Darkest Dark, which was illustrated by the Fan Brothers, and the photo book You Are Here Around the World in 92 Minutes. Commander Chris Hadfield joins me via Zoom from Las Vegas to talk about his new book, The Apollo Murders. Thank you for taking the time today to speak to me. My, my pleasure. Nice, nice to be speaking with you. And I'm actually uh, in all places. I'm in Las Vegas today. Are you really? Yeah. Is this part of the book tour? Uh, it's actually uh, research for the next in the series. Really? Well, that's a, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave that as a cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Las Vegas murders in outer space or something. Is that what it could be called? Uh, no, but there's, there, you'll see, there's some interesting plot ideas that, uh, that this is a good place to be. Um, I am excited. I'm excited. Well, good luck. If you do happen to go to the casinos, good luck and good luck with the research. (laughs) Now, is it true, uh, that the title of the Apollo murders, uh, came first as an idea from your publisher? And then you said, Oh, that sparks my imagination. Let's, let's do this. Yeah, back uh, many years ago, one of the great science fiction authors, Ray Bradbury, he wrote a book called The Martian Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And uh, when his family was going to re-release the book about five or six years ago, I can't remember, um, uh, through the Folio Society, they came to me to write a whole new introduction to... to, uh, to the Martian Chronicles. And so I really researched it and thought about it at the time and very carefully wrote quite an extensive introduction to it. And on the basis of that, uh, my British publisher got somehow the idea that I could write a thriller fiction book. And so he, he put together a title, uh, The Apollo Murders, and, um, and, and you know, sketched out the three people going to the moon and back and people die, you know, but, but it was really the title of it because it's quite defining when you think about it, Apollo. So, okay, you know, that, that's the time period, late 60s, early 70s, and murders with an S on the end. So I got to kill at least two people. So it's like, how am I going to do that? That's really intriguing. And, um, but I never really thought I, I had the, the skills or the time to write fiction, but I, I started digging into it. I did some training, you know, background reading. I read Stephen King's book on on writing and and 
did some other stuff and studied some of the really great thriller fiction writers and then just got busy and got at it, did a huge amount of research. And amazingly enough, those three words uh, over about a three-year period turned into this book. Stephen King's book on writing is such an indispensable guide for anybody who either wants to start writing fiction or has been writing for a while and just needs to have a refresher. It is an absolutely fantastic book. Yeah, it's it's autobiographical, really. And it's it's quite haphazard the way he wrote it, um, which I found very much mirrors the process of how it is that you create a, a new type of book, in my case, uh, a fiction thriller book. Um, and, you know, one of the best parts in it, Richard, was uh, Stephen King had one of his raw manuscripts as part of this book where he just written it before it had been edited. Mm-hmm. And it was terrible. <laughs> I was so heartened by that. Like, OK, Stephen King, when he just sits down and scribbles a bunch of stuff down, it's not always brilliant. It's not always Salem's Lot or something. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, the outpouring of his ideas, but it needs a lot of cleanup afterwards. And that was that was very uh, confidence building for me in that if Stephen King writes badly, but then gets it cleaned up and turned, then shoot. OK, so let's not be too judgmental. Um, and the the reviews, I mean, just uh, in the Sunday Times of London, they wrote mm. just a, a thrillingly good review for the book just very recently. So I, I'm just I'm both amazed and hugely delighted at the uh, at the critical review and the worldwide reaction so far to the Apollo murders. Well, I think one of the things that that manuscript in that book uh, said to me and really taught me and has stayed with me throughout my writing career is that the art of writing is in the rewriting. And that to me, once you get that in your head and you know that you're going to live with this for a little while, that you just don't write it out and it's perfect on the first pass, uh, changes everything for you. How on earth earth did Churchill dictate his books? Like, how organized could his thinking have been that he could dictate his books in their final form? I I don't know how he did that, but that that sure isn't how I wrote the Apollo Murders. You are listening to my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield, author of The Apollo Murders, available wherever fine books are sold. You've referred to this book as uh, a thriller. Uh, It's a murder mystery sometimes I'm see it referred to as science fiction. I think it's more hard science space fiction. Is that probably closer to the truth than science fiction? I think it's even closer to hard science space fact. Mm. Uh, I would say 90% of what happens in the Apollo murders is real, really happened. Real spaceships, real uh, intrigue, real problems. Um, and over half of the characters in the Apollo murders are real people, that mm-hmm. some of them are still alive. So I had to weave my story, my fictional story, and, and some of the amazing stuff that happened in amongst all of that reality. And I think that makes the book better. Like it makes it more interesting to write and I think more interesting to read because I, I even had to stick a section in the end, my author's note, um, to, to let people know, hey, this is real and this is real. And all these things really happened um, just because it was such a compelling time and, and intriguing time in space exploration. Well, some of the things that really grabbed me were uh, the descriptions of what happens when you fire a bullet in space, uh, things like that. Did you have to research that? Or is this because of your lengthy career uh, and, you know, your intimate knowledge of being in space? Was that just second nature to you? 
Well, the third time that I flew in space, I had a pistol with me, uh, a special Russian pistol. It actually a three barreled pistol, two with shot and one with a rifle. Um, and it's just, you know, it doesn't, it sounds nefarious, but really <laughs> it's in your survival kit, like right. with a saw and fish hooks and stuff, just in case you landed somewhere in the wilds of the earth and it could be a day or two before they could rescue you. Right. Um, but I thought a lot about that. And, and obviously, uh, you know, I know how to use a, a pistol. And, um, and on the secret Soviet space station, which they called Almaz, it was a spy space station in the early 70s. They actually mounted a gun, a, a big machine gun. That, that's for real. And they fired it in space. It was based on the tail gun of one of the Soviet bombers, if you can believe that. But that is, that's 100% fact. And so it made for a really interesting uh, plot opportunity for me, especially because in reality, that space station, uh, not that long after it was launched, mysteriously malfunctioned and came apart in orbit and then, and then burned up in the atmosphere. So, so that that real human event um, allowed me to to think of where the Apollo murders might go, mm -hmm. and including firing that gun uh, and uh, and and then you know doing all the analysis. And I've never fired a gun in weightlessness or in the vacuum of space, but digging into it, um, there's lots of info out there. And you know, I'm an engineer, so so I described it just because it was so kind of maybe technically interesting but also so germane to the plot and something i had never seen before or thought of before so it's a it's a cool little detail in the book that wasn't something that i had seen or read about a lot of times before and i appreciated that something that you talk about in other interviews is thinking like an astronaut uh, you're an engineer. Clearly, you have to have a, a certain mindset when you're going to be in space for as long as you've been. Does that apply to writing as well? Did you approach the job of writing in the extremely organized way that you would have to as you would a space uh, flight? I think it's kind of, I mean, it's not like I had a job as an astronaut for a little while. Mm -hmm. Like, it's who I am. You know, I served as an astronaut for 21 years, but but it's kind of the manifestation of of all the things I've done in my life. So I always think like an astronaut, you know, when I'm starting the car or, or brushing my teeth or writing a, a mystery novel. And so I approached it the same way. Uh, what is it that I'm that that I'm trying to accomplish here and what are the risks involved and what don't I know how to do yet? And then wrap, you know, start urgently improving my own skill set so to try and accomplish this thing that I want to do that has risk. You know, that's that's how you fly a rocket ship or, or do a spacewalk. And so I applied that to writing this. You know, how do you write um, a, a thriller, action, novel, historical fiction? And and so I, you know, I studied at the feet of the masters. I read the people that have just done the absolute best. The people I, I just love the way they wrote. And this time I wasn't just reading the story, but I was analyzing how did they do this? How did the, what sort of protagonist did they choose? How did they keep some stuff secret and only reveal it to me? How did they punctuate? Like, how do you, how do you attribute conversation? You know, so you don't always just have he said, she said, how do you do all that? So I had a lot of mechanics to learn. You're listening to my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield. He's the author of The Apollo Murders, which is available now wherever you buy fine books. When you're writing a mystery novel, 
I think the most important thing is obviously to create great characters and an evocative setting, uh, a mystery that compels people. But when people get to the end of the book and they, they're reading the last few pages, they can't feel cheated. Yeah. They can't feel like they couldn't have figured it out, even if they didn't. But you have to be very careful to lay out the story in such a way so that people go, oh, that makes sense. It's not something that just comes out of left field where you that must have been something that played on your mind a little bit as you're laying this story out. It really did, Richard. And the other big thing for me is sufficient uh, motivation. Like if you're going to kill, you know, murders, if I if I need to get my characters to kill two people, what is worth killing for? And it has to be credible. It has to be really uh, fundamental, whether it's it's something like a wartime thing or whether it's some sort of mental aberration. But whoever the killer is, they have to be convinced they're doing the thing that needs doing at that time. And so I really thought a lot about that. And then when I'd finished the book, I sent an early version of it to, to James Cameron because you know, Jim's a friend and he loves the book. But he came back with exactly your point, Richard. And that was, Chris, you need to you need to put two little changes in here because otherwise the reader is going to call you out on it. You know, you, and you've got to give the reader a little more information slightly earlier so that they had a chance here to, to be along with you. And those two little, you know, he's a great screenwriter and obviously a terrific uh, director, producer and editor, but uh, those two little tweaks, I think, you know, coming from someone who's, who's got more experience than I do, were really important in, in sharpening the, the Apollo murders as best as I could possibly do it. Well, perhaps he'll direct the film. <laughs> I've <laughs> talked to him about it. He'd love to. Um, you know, that he, he said those words, uh, but he's so heavily into what he's doing with the Avatar sequels. Yeah. And uh, he missed his mom's 90th birthday because he was down in New Zealand and with the whole COVID thing. And it's been it's been a real hard slog of work for him. But he did put me you know, in touch with uh, with other movie houses. And I'm in no hurry to make a bad version of the Apollo Martyrs. You know, if we're going to make a movie out of it, it's got to be something I'm happy to have my name associated with. I don't want a cringeworthy space film you know, that somehow my name's on. So. So I'm in no hurry, but but definitely, like anything else, I want to talk to the experts and do it as well as I can. Well, these stories lit your imagination up when you were a younger man, a, a, a boy reading books, reading Ray Bradbury. The movie 2001 yeah. had a huge impact on you. Uh, this is kind of like a legacy pro uh, product for you, almost something that brings your interest full circle uh, yeah. from the literary growing up to, to the present day. I never would have expected it. You know, I, I saw those books growing up, you know, as comic books and then, and then science fiction books. I saw them all as finished products, right? Mm. I didn't understand the, the, the writers, the authors or the process, or, you know, just how, how it is they took an idea and brought it in so that I could then be inspired by it. Um, but I got to spend one whole day with Arthur C. Clarke at the Kennedy Space wow. Center. Uh, they said I was working there uh, supporting space launches. And, and you know, in the morning, somebody said, hey, Arthur Clark's coming this week. Anybody want to take him around? And I was like, me, me, I want to do that. Let me take Arthur. And I got to spend an entire day with Arthur C. Clark. And it was the, you know, the most interesting thing about that day. He was much later in his life, of course, was his curiosity and his fascination and his, his desire to understand. And 
you know, his body was starting to let him down. He was getting elderly, but his delight in the discovery of new things and the seeing directly of where our technology was taking us uh, and, you know, my delight in just getting him, you know, to, to getting to show him some of that. But, and then to see that guy who had written, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey and, and who had written so many good books. Um, so yeah, it, this book is sort of, uh, you know, a, a tribute to some of those great tales, but it's also to the, the thriller fiction writers that I love, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and, yeah. and uh, gosh, John McDonald or Jonathan Kellerman or, uh, or, you know, there's so many that, that I reread um, just to try and understand how they wrote and, and see if maybe I could incorporate some of, you know, how Dick Francis builds his protagonists or, or how Ian Fleming, why did he choose a guy like Bond, you know, right. so that he could have a recurring series? You know, there's so much cleverness in, in how Ken Follett wrote uh, The Eye of the Needle. Um, so, yeah, so for me, it's not just to the science fiction, but it, it's to the whole genre. You're listening to my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield, author of The Apollo Murders, available now wherever you buy fine books. Well, I have read that Frederick Forsyth who wrote The Day of the Jackal, also loves your book. That must be a bit of a mind blower. Isn't that amazing? I mean, <laughs> I gave myself homework because um, one of the things that Stephen King and James Patterson and everybody recommended if you're going to try and write fiction is read. Mm. You know, the whole time you're writing, you need to be reading, which kind of seemed counterproductive to me, but they were, of course, right. But one of the master, you know, thriller fiction books that I assigned myself as homework was The Day of the Jackal because it, that boy that keeps the secret to the end and, and and you don't know if it's you know it's be successful or not it gets way into the mind of uh of the jackal himself the the assassin um and and so i read that and then somehow frederick forsyth gets a copy of the apollo murders and loves it and, and so he was so kind to write on the back you know he said not to be missed yeah you know? even in fiction there's authenticity, either it's there or it is not. And and he just loves the Apollo murders. And I just, you know, in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't think that Frederick Forsyth would be endorsing my first thriller fiction novel, but there it is in, in white and black and red. Do, yeah, that's right. Now, do you think that uh, you share that same uh, quality with Arthur C. Clarke? You're always looking at the next thing, which is, I think, what Arthur C. Clarke was all about. Absolutely. I mean, one of the orbits that we use to go around the world and other planets, um, it's called the Clark orbit. He invented it and we use it as, as spacefaring people. You know, he was that level of involved. He wasn't just a writer, um, really capable guy. He dove with uh, Jacques Cousteau when, when Aqualungs were brand new. And the, the stories that, that I talked with him about that day were amazing. Um, but uh, you know, my wife and I have always sort of conducted life that way. And that is, and it goes, you know, right back to when I was a kid, you know, a lot of kids said, wow, it'd be cool to be an astronaut. But I actually looked at it and said, okay, it wouldn't just be cool to be an astronaut, but I'm, I want, I'm going to be an astronaut. So how do you do that? And what changes do I need to start making now in order to enable that to happen in my life? And I, I'm still just as curious and excited about all the stuff that I haven't had a chance to do yet. And so just, you know, uh, what, 10 years back, I said to goal was, can I write a book? And that became the astronaut's guide to life on earth. 
And then, you know, okay, I can write a book, but all those images I put, or, you know, little kids get afraid and maybe I could write a useful book for little kids on how, how there's a difference between fear and danger. And that became the darkest dark. But then this great challenge of trying to tell the space story, but in a really sort of uh, palpable way where you can get way involved in it. So you come away from the story feeling sort of breathlessly part mm -hmm. of of going to the moon and back. And, and so from my point of view, it's one more way to share the incredible experiences that I've had, but it's also just my own continuum of, of what's the, a cool challenge I'd love to try and do, and then see if I have any of the skills. And there's lots of stuff I can't do, but, but you know, the stuff that I can do, you know, what great fun in discovering that within myself and then pushing it to my own my own limits, you know. That was my interview with Commander Chris Hadfield. What an accomplished guy. He's not only walked in space, but now he has a best-selling mystery thriller out called The Apollo Murders. You can find it wherever you buy fine books. Catherine Ryan is a Canadian who moved to England in 2007 with a boyfriend who wanted to start a comedy career in the UK. Now, his comedy career didn't take off, but her sure did. And now Brits know her and love her from the many panel shows she's appeared on, her wildly popular No Filter podcast, Telling Everybody Everything, or her Netflix comedy drama, The Duchess. She also has a new series, Backstage with Catherine Ryan, which will showcase live stand-up sets from beloved and emerging comedians. It's slated to premiere on Amazon Prime in 2022. She's known for being hilariously herself in a very non-apologetic way, so it doesn't come as any surprise that her latest project, a memoir that details her rise to fame in the UK and her Canadian life before that as a Hooters waitress and Ryerson student, and before that in her life in Sarnia, is called The Audacity. Catherine Ryan joined me via Zoom from London. Well, I think comedians were really lacking in conversation. I always feel like comedy is meant to be a two-way conversation. And we weren't allowed to gig, obviously, in lockdown. We weren't allowed to go to all the towns and cities that we normally go to. So I started a podcast and people would email in and we had a dialogue that way. And lots of people were asking for advice. So The Audacity is a memoir and it's a comedy memoir, but it's also a how-to because I realized that I have a lot of advice to give. I have lots of life experiences. I've made a lot of mistakes and I can hopefully impart some of the wisdom that I've gained onto other people. So tell me a little bit about determining the style of the book. It's a how-to and it literally has uh, titles like how to marry your high school boyfriend. There's chapters uh, with, with names like that. Tell me a little bit about uh, that was, was that, uh, at the forefront of your mind when you were sitting down to write, or was it going to be more of a straightforward memoir that turned into a how-to book? Well, I think it's very strange to write a memoir in your thirties because, <laughs> you know, I definitely have a lot of hopefully life left to live, but um, I was absolutely ready to be that bridge between someone's mother and uh, someone's sister to give that type of you know, tipsy auntie advice. And I think it's interesting to me being the mother of a 12 year old, there are 12 year olds who come to my show and 14 year olds and 16 year olds, I, but also men and older couples. And I just feel like I'm at a specific place in my career where the young people still listen to me. And even though I kind of have a dirty mouth, 
I do have very empowering advice. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll frame it like a how-to. And then it's not so daunting for me as well as the author, because I was just writing, oh, now I'll do a chapter about this relationship. Now I'll do a chapter about getting started in comedy. So it made it a lot more palatable, something that I could really, um, I, I, would, I could write it without getting overwhelmed. I think it just worked. It was a really organic way to write the funny book. And I know that uh, the podcast came out of the pandemic. You talk about the two-way conversation that comedy is when you're on stage uh, with an audience and you missed that. So you recreated that with the podcast. Um, the The writing of this book uh, was must have been done in isolation. You live in England. Things were locked down tight there for a very long time. Yeah. Was it a way of connecting somehow it seems odd because you're writing it on a computer and it's not really, it's not a personal connection, but you're talking about very personal things. Uh, was that a way of sort of pandemic coping? I mean, I cope really well in all type of scenarios. I'm very robust, Richard, but I definitely wrote it um, from a personal standpoint. What I tried to do is email my editor all the chapters as though I was writing a letter to a best friend. And I, I do offer full disclosure and I'm very confessional in my comedy. And I just thought that's how I want the book to come across. I want people to feel like they're uh, getting advice and hearing secrets from a best friend because that's the type of comedy that I gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. So I was all alone in lockdown and I just wrote these emails to my editor. Like now I want to discuss this and now I want to talk about this. And I tried to forget that it would be published one day and people in Canada could buy it and people in my hometown could buy it. I just sort of, I did what I always do, which is I forget that there are consequences. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Catherine Ryan. Find her book, The Audacity, wherever you buy fine books. The book is uh, is funny by times. It is uh, very empowering by times. But you delve into some dark uh, parts of your life. You talk about toxic relationships. You talk about uh, the death of a friend when you were still living in Sarnia, Ontario. Um, did writing about those things bring up these bad memories or was it a way to push them away? Or have you already done that? And this was just another manifestation of that. I think it was a catharsis because there are certain subjects that aren't appropriate for the Apollo stage or to put in a Netflix special. Um, pregnancy loss affects so many families, but I don't think it's something that I would tackle in a stand-up set because it could be very alienating. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, um, oh, I think the book is a good way to be more earnest and more sincere and reveal some of the darker things. And I do believe that there's lightness in dark. Mm -hmm. And I do think that you can discuss these subjects in the right environment, in the right context, and still produce a really funny memoir. So unfortunately, the young woman who was murdered in my town in Sarnia, that event was heartbreaking for her family, for her best friends. But as someone who knew her as a colleague at work, it also wrote on the canvas of who I was becoming as a young woman. And I made um, conclusions about men based on that event. And I think it kickstarted a whole narrative about me thinking that men could be very dangerous. And I think that's an important issue to discuss domestic homicide and, um, you know, these are not subjects for a stand-up set necessarily. You know, I always watch the specials and I love when comedians tackle really dark subjects 
because I feel like I can take it. But for me, I certainly didn't want to, you know, I think I need to be out of the pandemic for a little while, get my chops back before I delve into something so serious. I certainly wouldn't want to trigger anyone trying to have a fun Saturday night out. Right. And you did some Zoom shows, right? Zoom comedy shows. Did you try those? I did not try many. No. I was very, um, again, <laughs> because they're awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> For me, uh, as an audience member, they didn't really work. And I can only imagine how soul destroying it was for the comedians. Right. I didn't want to do that. I just feel like comedy is a very specific medium. And to translate that to video chat for me, I mean, but I'm again, I'm in a position of privilege where I had other things going on. I could take a break. And a lot of my peers and I will never forget the clubs that really supported me in the beginning. You know, I started at Yuck Yucks on John and Adelaide, and I know so many grassroots comedy clubs in the UK that went under during the pandemic. And I also know a lot of my peers didn't have the um, luxury to turn down Zoom gigs. You know, they had to adapt and they had to do them. But uh, those of us who had the luxury, we did not want to become TikTokers overnight. I just didn't do it. Where do you think that uh, this well of confidence that you talk about in the book, uh, that you exude on stage and on television and the specials and things, where do you think that comes from? I think I owe a lot of it to my mother. I think my mom demonstrated, unfortunately, a real um, fiery spirit, but a lack of confidence when it came to pursuing her own interests. And she made a lot of sacrifices as so many people do when they want to raise a family or, you know, they, they, they go into what they believe is a safe industry and certainly not everyone can be an artist, mm -hmm. but I think I, I understood very young and this is a big part of what I hope to teach people in any industry is I learned very young that it's impossible for everyone to like you and to sp spend any time or energy trying to make that. So is a real um, fruitless, pursuit. It's not possible. And I just became really peaceful about that as probably a teenager. I went, oh, well, not everyone's going to like what this is, but I'll find my tribe and I'll just do whatever I have to do. I wanted to go on adventures and I wanted to try. I wanted to try so many things. And I did. And I failed a lot of those times. I auditioned for a Sean Paul music video. I've not been in a Sean Paul music video. You know, I've, I've had loads of comedy gigs where I died on my butt. And that's good for me. I like those experiences and they've only made me stronger. And now I'm 38. I think a lot of 38 year old women are uh, finally pretty confident. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Catherine Ryan, the London based comedian whose new book, The Audacity is available now wherever you buy fine books. Now we're told to be confident. Why do you think that it upsets some people? Well, I do think women especially are, um, told to be confident, but we're also supposed to be humble and we're supposed to be beautiful, but effortlessly so. We're certainly not supposed to have plastic surgery or admit to having plastic surgery. And we are supposed to know our place and that is changing, but you certainly don't want to be a problematic woman. If you're a businesswoman, if you speak your mind, then you are branded as being difficult. And if you dare to survive past age 35, then you know, you're kind of a shrew and you can be a problem. And 
I think uh, the narrative is maybe different for women still, even though a lot has changed. I'm, I'm always very peaceful and positive about the fact that there are more um, female voices in comedy, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, things are changing. But still, I think confidence in us is sometimes misread as being uh, unkind or as being audacious. And I think, I think we're not told to be confident. I, I really don't think we are. I think we get a lot of mixed messages. You didn't grow up, uh, from what I understand, listening to comedy records or thinking, well, I'm going to be a stand-up comic someday. And then Sarah Silverman came along and kind of changed things for you. Yeah, we certainly always valued comedy in my house. Um, it was cool to be funny. It was something that was value, I, valued. I didn't grow up in one of these households where um, you had to behave yourself and not use naughty language. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are utterly humorless. I didn't grow up like that at all. Um, I have an Irish dad and my mom's family are really flamboyant. It was always a good thing to be able to hold conversation at the table. You get attention that way. But I didn't want to be a stand-up until I saw Sarah Silverman when I was in university at Ryerson. I saw some of her uh, material and I just thought, I thought, oh, I'd love to be like her. I just thought, I'd never really seen a performer that was able to draw me in that much. I always loved the Golden Girls. I loved Joan Rivers. I loved David Letterman. I, you know, I loved a lot of performers, but it was Sarah Silverman that was just the one for me that I went, oh, I want to be just like that. And that led to an open mic. And I wonder if you remember the experience of getting up there. And do you remember any of the material? I remember all of it clearly, yeah. Richard. So no one came to see me on purpose for the greater part of a decade. And I loved that time. I think it was a very liberating time. Coming from a small town, everyone's famous because everyone knows your business. Right. If you cut someone off in the road, that is probably your kindergarten teacher. You can't be giving them <laughs> a finger. But when I moved to Toronto, I felt beautifully anonymous. I loved the idea that I could just go to an open mic and I didn't invite any of my friends. No one knew who I was there. I just got on stage at Yuck Yucks and I remember my material. I spoke about, some of it was very edgy because I wanted to be like Sarah Silverman, but I lacked, you know, the skill and nuance to pull it off properly. So some of it was about walking around downtown in Toronto and feeling unsafe. And my mother had given me a whistle in case I was attacked, which is very dark material, actually. Yeah, yeah. And then what am I going to do with a whistle? I said, if I blow the whistle, an attacker would just be like, okay, well, I guess adult swim is over, but you're still getting in the back of this van. It was kind of dark. You're listening to my interview with Catherine Ryan. Find her book, The Audacity, wherever you buy fine books. And then I also spoke about my flatmates or my roommate at Ryerson and having, uh, like trips to the Loblaws with her to get groceries or something. And then also I'd been to a taping of the Dr. Phil show that was somewhere downtown in Toronto, just really fun stories about what my life was like at the time. Um, I spoke about receiving Paris Hilton's signature perfume for Christmas. And that really told a story about how my family thought of me, like really just, you know, it was very basic, but, it wasn't terrible. And then I got terrible for a while because I I took a lot of advice and I, I tried to be more edgy and I just wasn't good. Well, it seems to me that 
in that first bit that you were just describing there, that you're actually just talking about things that you understood through your life and, and the stuff that's authentic. And that's what works. I think when you, you can smell a comic when they're not authentic. That's 100% it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand that when they start comedy, they do an impression of someone else. And I was doing a Sarah Silverman impression for a lot of my early uh, career. But I agree with you, Richard, that the best comedians, no one can take their material or do it again because every joke exudes, you yeah. know, just that comic and it, it comes from them. And I feel the same. Those are the ones that I go to see. Now, you have lived uh, in England uh, for 15 or 16 years now, I think. Is that right? And yeah. uh, you call this book, though you're from Sarnia, Ontario, you call this book a little bit of a love letter to Canada. Has living away from Canada uh, for all those years given you more of a perspective on how you grew up here? Definitely. And I think that for a long time, I would slag off my hometown just because I think it's funny to be ungrateful about your roots. <laughs> I think it's a different, it's a fresh perspective because I hear so often performers are very um, humble about where they come from and they speak really um, favorably about their roots. I just thought it would be funny to burn bridges. That's the only reason I talk badly about Sarnia, that and the petrochemical industry. But I love Canada and I went back there to trace my heritage and that's how I met my husband. And writing the book, I realized I have so many lovely memories of the Francophone community and of living in Toronto and then also traveling all around Eastern Canada and finding out what my ancestors went through in the cod trade and everything. There are lots of little Canada Easter eggs all through the book. You talk about uh, meeting your husband uh, that falls under the chapter of how to marry your high school boyfriend, which is kind of an incredible story. It's very sweet. Everyone says, oh, tell me the story again. It's so adorable. And I'm like, is it? Is it adorable? You didn't have to uh, bang all those losers in between. Arguably, neither did I. But I was dating my current husband when we were 15, 16 in Sarnia. And I just feel like it's very poetic to me that you can move across an ocean and you can go through all these life experiences and try to um, construct this persona and live this life. But you can't escape what fate has in store for you. And I just loved him. I saw him again in Toronto uh, by chance and we were married seven months later. That was Catherine Ryan. Find her book, The Audacity, wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Catherine Ryan for zooming in all the way from London. Also, a big thanks goes out to Chris Hadfield, the author of The Apollo Murders. You can find that book wherever fine books are sold as well. Of course, though, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>